Today is the first of three lectures we've got on contraception. Uh, when I first, first time I taught this course, I made a point of putting contraception almost at the very end of the course because I wanted to kind of avoid the dynamic where in sexual morality it seems like everything's about contraception. That's kind of the only thing we're obsessed with. Um, this time of doing it, I've brought it a little closer to the middle, um, but we can't really do justice to this topic without having had a number of other things in place before. So we've looked at chastity as a virtue, um, looked at the end and purpose of marriage and sexuality, looked at homose homosexuality in terms of a, a thing where it's not got that end at all of procreation or any effective union in complementarity. So we're at a stage now where we should be able to think about contraception kind of adequately. Last lecture, um, we had a whole thing just on the difference between natural family planning and contraception, um, which is was a big thing to do a whole lecture on that. But it's a distinction that lots of people get confused about. Also, as I indicated, there are lots of good rad trads out there who are unduly skeptical of natural family planning. So I want us to have a grasp of that as a general thing before we're thinking about the specifics of contraception as a moral analysis in itself. What were the key points we had last lecture? Natural family planning, contraception. Okay, so there have to be just causes to use natural family planning. Yeah, that, and we looked at what some of those are. Other things? Well, the end is the same that we're going towards, and means are different. Yeah. Same ends in the short term. This act of sexual intercourse, we are intending that there should not be children. But what's the means to that end? But the just causes, meaning somehow within, there's an aspect of the intention not quite being the same, because when natural family planning is used in a just way, the intention is appropriate for the other reasons. But generally speaking, the intention is the same, it's the means that's different. And that's the thing we need to be very clear of, that it's fine on many occasions to very definitely intends to not to have a child, but how are you seeking to realize that? And that's the thing we're looking at now with respect to contraception. So this lecture and our next lecture is going to look at contraception in particular with respect to Janet Smith. and is therefore what we're going to call a naturalist analysis. I'll explain more about what that means, but that basically rooting everything in what is the nature of things, um, so very much therefore a scholastic, Aristotelian, Thomistic approach, and we're going to contrast that with Germaine Griset's approach in a subsequent lecture.
optimistically, in an Aristotelian manner, a question of teleology. So the nature of something, the question of what it is, we need to know the end, we need to consider the question of what something flourishing means. So when we talk about ought, duty, obligation, that means acting to achieve the end and not acting contrary to the end. So that our moral analysis in terms of the obligation, the question of the ought, uh, is structured in terms of knowing the nature and the end. We already touched last time this phrase per se destinatus. Inhumana Vitae. And we're going to note, so remember I was saying that per se destinatus, um, the, the early translations frequently said it was open, and I was articulating from Janet Smith in particular, open just doesn't capture what it's about. So I'm going to note three examples. Old age, um, someone who's permanently infertile. Both of those cases, the sexual act still remains per se destinatus towards children, towards the marital union. Um, even when the act physically is no longer going to be able to produce a child, what is the act about? It still retains that meaning, that ordering is per se destinatus, an act that is fertile in that sense. And so in the monthly infertility of a young fertile woman cycle, on the days of the month when she isn't fertile, the act still has this ordering, per se destinatus, um, to the meaning of the act. We're going to note Janet Smith trying to summarize her whole approach she tries to discern the nature of the act. How does she do that? And she uses a lot of physical analysis in her structure. She notes that body organs have functions. 
she notes the physical bodily processes that these reveal the nature of the act and reveal the nature of the person because we're ultimately we're concerned about the significance of the body the significance of acts because they tell us about the person she says that acts proper to organs so that each or many organs of the body have a act that is proper to that organ so my tongue it's proper for it to speak acts proper to organs have proper functions ends, telos, so the body organ has a function, physical bodily processes reveal that function, reveal the nature of the act, reveal something about the person, and that there are acts proper to organs that have themselves proper functions, ends and telos, and that the key point or the conclusion of her approach that to violate the meaning of the act is to violate the person. going to note two examples to kind of clarify what we're talking about examples that aren't about sex so in the example of eating the end primary end is nourishment but it also has secondary ends and that therefore gluttony is the end violated the measure to use the language of virtue violated So we take a human action, we look at the action to ask what is the end, the purpose, what's going on there. Its primary purpose, its end is nourishment. And if we violate that with an undue measure in gluttony, because gluttony therefore isn't about nourishment, 
then the action is not proper to its end, um, therefore is a sin. Another example we'll note, sleeping, and contrast that with um, getting drunk. So in both sleeping and in getting drunk, you have at some level ceased to be rational. But here, um, you've not violated yourself as a rational being. Here you have done something that does. Now, why is that different? That's what we're going to unpack as we go through this. And then we're going to say, as a kind of conclusion of all this analysis, that in contraception, the act has been altered, the act has been violated. Whereas in natural family planning, the act is not altered. Its finality has not been tampered with. That, in summary, is what we're going to do today and next lecture. So let's turn to the lecture notes for today. So I say it's at the top of page one there, so contraception we're looking at the naturalist argument against the immorality of contraception, following in particular Janet Smith. Um, so one of the things to start by being clear of is this is only one particular argument against contraception. Uh, the reason we're also gonna look at Grise is I want you to be clear that the church has a doctrine, a teaching it holds, that contraception is intrinsically evil but there are multiple different ways you can argue to that conclusion. It's the doctrine that we hold in faith. It's the doctrine that we say the natural law says this, but what a natural law argument is, there isn't a single argument the church says this is the argument. It's the conclusion that we hold to in faith. So we're gonna unpack here a natural law argument. So let's remember what natural law is. So page one here, I'm just trying to summarize some basic points I hope you'll remember. Um, so just starting, how do we define natural law? I give a, a kind of my own summary definition at the top there. The natural law is the knowledge of right and wrong that we have by the light of unaided reason. 
So reason without the Bible, reason without the tradition, reason without the saints, that reasoning, that's what natural law reveals, um, is. But how do you do that sort of reasoning? And I know one and two, they're two rival theories. How much did you do on the is or controversy in your fundamental moral theology? The is ought controversy? You mentioned it a couple times, but never really explained it. Okay, so this is a one page summary of what the is ought controversy is. Um, so the first point approach is the approach that Janet Smith takes. Um, we can deduce the natural law from our knowledge of human nature. As, as I say, this is sometimes called ethical naturalism. And a very brief example, I say the nature of eating is primarily about nourishment. And thus gluttony is a sin because it violates the nature of the activity of eating. That's the kind of basic structure of a naturalist approach. You look at the nature of the activity. And this presumes if we are thinking of three concepts. The moral law is what we're trying to find out. Well, you have reason as a rational being. You can look at human nature and reason looks at nature and reveals what the natural law is. That is an is-ought structure. You look at what something is and you deduce how it ought to behave. Second approach rejects that, says we cannot deduce ethical laws from nature. So this was classically articulated uh, by David Hume, who said you cannot deduce an ought from an is. You've all heard of Germain Griset, but your fundamental moral theology wouldn't have dwelt on him at any length. We kind of just dismissed him. Okay, which is kind of what I'm going to do. Um, but I'm going to try and give enough of a taste of him for you in at least one lecture to see something of his approach. He said, um, I say, Germaine Griset develops an entire ethical system accepting Hume's premise, i.e. that you can't go from is to ought. And as I say, this is sometimes called anti-naturalism. I note uh, Catholic progressives, um, as they might style themselves, complained before the council or preconsider approaches that they labeled as physicalist. And here I'm quoting Charles Curran, one of the kind of definitive progressives after Humanae Vitae, saying that descriptions of the sexual act that I say allegedly identify the demands of the natural law with physical and biological processes, such that the individual may not interfere with the animal processes and finalities of the body. See, i.e. condoms are wrong. Why? Because they stop semen reaching its physical goal. So everything is structured in terms of the physical. 
And I note this is a progressive stereotype of traditional Thomistic analyses. Um, I will quote later in these lectures a scholar who does come very close to this, but I think this is, at least as it's laid out, a stereotype of the, pre, the neo-scholastic approach rather than the neo-scholastic approach. But before the council, just after the council, progressive saying, you're entirely focused on the physical, that doesn't work. There is, there's more to the analysis than there is. You can't look at the is and deduce how you ought to behave. I know there are also secular critics of natural law. I say, similarly, mistake that claim, mistakenly claim that natural law theory says that Catholics may not oppose the workings of nature. And I say, for example, um, the ethicist Mary Warnock critiques natural law ethics by commenting on hip replacements, saying, Nothing could be less natural than a plastic hip joint, yet hip replacement surgery is seldom objected to on the grounds that it's contrary to nature. So she's just kind of mocking natural law there, um, but also, I would say, just wholly misinterpreting any authentic Catholic approach to natural law, but thinking that we're all just about the physical, the physical, the physical. So the Grisean uh, approach says, you, says it, it just fails when you try to deduce your ought of behavior from what is the case. And Germain Grisea has a very in-depth, complicated theory, theory to kind of lay out how otherwise to start within reason, stay within reason, never looking at the physical structure at the is, and starting in reason, staying in reason, deduce a law of reason, the moral law. Um, so these two approaches, even if you haven't had this articulated at length, you see the basic contrast? This is a big concept to be throwing at you in one lecture uh, as an introduction. Yeah. Okay. Frustrating the, the natural end or frustrating the physical, physical end? Physical end or the, yeah, I don't remember how the framework natural was, but like the example of the physicalism, like that's, yeah, that's not good. Okay. So if it was going to be an entirely physicalist approach, it would say contraception's wrong because it frustrates the physical end. If it's a better, as I would see it, natural law approach, it's going to say contraception is wrong because it frustrates the natural end, which is inherently connected with the physical, but it's something deeper than the physical. We look at the physical and it reveals to us something of the nature of the act, the nature of the person, but we don't care about the physical just because it's physical. 
in the same way that mutilating the body um, it's not just because we care about the arm as an arm but because it's part of a person it has a significance to the person so we'd be upset about cutting off a human's arm in a way that doing the same to an animal we, we wouldn't have the same degree of concern about as a moral act okay we'll come back to that as a contrast later Okay, all that is kind of an introduction. Page two, still kind of setting the scene. So I've titled this page, Janet Smith and the Turning of the Tide. I would say there's a moment in, in the post-conciliar history where Janet Smith came along and there's a whole intellectual trajectory that changed. And I, I would argue she was pivotal in that. But before her, I say from 1968, when Humanae Vitae was published, to 1991, the prime defenders of the church's teaching that contraception is intrinsically evil were Grizet and his GBFM school. Um, GBFM meaning Grizet, Boyle, Finnis and May, the four principal scholars who together articulated, developed his school. I say they fought alone, they fought valiantly. Um, I wouldn't want to undermine the, the worth of what they did. See, but many ridiculed the church's conclusion by ridiculing Grisey's arguments. Say Grisey's system was attacked as legalistic, as divorced from humanity because it focused on these abstract goods he talked about rather than on persons. And I say most failed to note that the traditional argument was different than Grisey's. So when I was in seminary, the proportionalist that taught me, um, we read Grisey together um, as kind of, what does the church say on contraception? Um, which is always put against what everybody else says. Um, but what does the church say on contraception? We had this article from Grisey. Uh, and it's very difficult to follow Grisey, particularly if you only kind of have a one article and that's everything. And he's written multiple books articulating his whole system. But I can remember our professor attacking Grisey and thinking therefore he was dismissing the church. If Grisey's argument is too complicated, if Grisey's argument doesn't work, therefore what the church says is incoherent. So there was a long period of time when Grisey and the conclusion, what the church teaches, were somehow equated. And we'll look at Griset in a couple weeks, but um, my biggest objection to him is it just feels like doing Immanuel Kant in a Catholic seminary. It's just some, some bits of it kind of feel convincing step by step, but the whole structure just feels very weighty and legalistic rather than being rooted in a person. Okay, I say a sea change in the 1990s. So in 1991, Janet Smith published her seminal work, Humanae Vitae, a generation later. So here is my original edition copy. Um, it was very influential um, in 
lots of orthodox recovering circles, whatever you're going to label it. Um, but it was utterly different from Germaine Griset. The title, A Generation Later, so she wrote this book a whole generation, a quarter of a century after Humanivite. So we had a whole big block of time to think, how has the living of contraception in society, how has that worked? How has that looked? And that's part of her analysis. So as I've already quoted a bit to you uh, in other lectures, she dwells on statistics connecting, for example, divorce rates and the use of contraception, um, which wouldn't have been possible in 1968. Back to my notes here. I say, her analysis was not rooted in GBFM's abstract legal principles, but in human nature, the teleology of human organs and their related acts. Her analysis drew on, I say, traditional Thomism, but mixed with John Paul II's personalism and other strains of thought. About the same time or overlapping, 1997 onwards, Christopher West started popular lecturing on uh, marriage and the theology of the body. So West popularized John Paul II and gave a popular approach to the church's teaching. And I would see those as two waves of influence happening at the same time in the church that suddenly gave a, a very personal gloss to what the church was saying about contraception. A very different structuring and approach to the argument. So nonetheless, the GBFM school continues to be highly influential. In many seminaries, our own included, moral theology teaching switches from anti-naturalist to naturalist positions every time a professor changes. So my predecessor, Monsignor McMahon, um, was a disciple of Griset. Um, you know, Emmitsburg, which might have had the claim to be the greatest seminary in the US for a long period of time, um, for a long period of time, they were following Griset. Um, they don't anymore, um, as a kind of conscious decision there, I gather. But the Griseian school is very much still out there. Um, and I say, your current lecturer, me, um, aims to expose you to both schools, um, but I'm favoring Smith. Um, so Janet Smith retired from seminary teaching. She taught at Sacred Heart in Detroit, um, in, for mo uh, I don't know if most, a large block of her time. She retired in 1991. So she's become a powerful campaigner exposing conspiracy of sexual deviance in the priesthood and the episcopate. That's kind of become her thing the last few years. And kind of as a very respected laywoman, she's able to do that with a voice and authority that somebody else might not be able to. She came and talked to my parish last year. Yeah, and what did she talk on? Contraception, but it was a lot of the statistics of like why it's wrong, natural law, why it's wrong. Right. Mostly statistics. Preaching to the choir there, I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was the young adults group having 
Okay. And, you know, when you're dealing with young adults, even the preaching to the choir, you might kind of all be there and kind of hyped up, yeah, we're Catholic. But if you don't have a real grounding why, then when you're tested, you're tempted, you're not going to have any foundation to stay Catholic. So sometimes preaching to the choir is really important to do. And what were her statistics? Do you remember pointing? No. no. I mean, she went through a whole bunch of divorce, all sorts of other things. Okay. Of, like the negative effects of it. And some of which, not I won't then be drawing on her, but there are other statistics in terms of, you know, the effects of promiscuity and uh, what we might call underage sex, um, just how damaging that is psychologically, socially, and so forth. Um, and again, to repeat the point, in the 1960s, 1968 in particular, none of those statistics existed. So all you'd have been able to say as a good Catholic priest is, the church says it, so we've got to do it. Um, and you know, you got to respect those people that remained faithful through that time. It wasn't an easy position. Nature and reason. So summarizing at the bottom there, what is her approach linking nature and reason? I say she looked to nature to show us God's law, the natural law. Daniel, can you read that quote for us? God is the author of nature. Nature is designed in accord with reason, for God governs the universe. Thus, to act in accord with nature is to act in accord with reason, and to act in accord with reason is to act in accord with nature. Okay, all of that is kind of a fairly long introduction explaining the background to her historically, somewhat philosophically with this is or question. Comments, observations so far? So you've heard her speak. Have the rest of you heard of her? Okay. When I heard her, I heard her speak in the mid-90s. She was doing a tour in England, and she was then a young scholar. And kind of first, you know, she was about the time she'd published this. And it was just a very exciting time to hear her kind of articulating these things, what to my mind was just an utterly new approach. And, you know, sometimes you get... You look at the theology books kind of historically in the library, you get new approaches that come along and then 10 years later, completely forgotten. Other times you get a new approach that comes along and it then becomes deeply significant. And it's hard, I don't really see what would replace this other than maybe somehow something that even more integrates personalism and experience with, in a sense, doing what she's intending to do, but even better with more passage of time. Okay, so the reading assignment I've given you for today and the next lecture is attempting to give you, from the primary source, some key passages where you hear her own voice articulating this. The pages here that we're going to go through today and next lecture are trying to map out 
structurally what is the nature of her argument. So on to page three. Um, word of clarification, traditional Thomism. Uh, we all know instantly if someone says, oh, I'm a traditional Thomist, just how instantly controversial such a claim is going to be. Yes, that everybody's claiming to be a traditional, the authentic Thomas, the, um, or almost everybody. That Thomas is, at this moment, in lots of circles at least, so much in fashion that the question is, is my position the real Thomas, or is his position the real Thomas? When Griset started, he claimed his position was St. Thomas, and his first few articles were um, drawing on, commenting on the Summa Theologica. As the years went on, he then said, well, no, his was a position of his own, even though it wasn't St. Thomas, and it was a better position, even though it wasn't St. Thomas. Though there are still some of his disciples who claim, no, actually, that is the authentic St. Thomas. So when I'm using the label traditional Thomistic natural law and saying that's what Janet Smith is articulating, I'm making a claim in that statement. As you hear me, realize I'm, I'm making that claim. Okay, I say a longer review of the background principles. Um, and the rest there I've just said. Okay, the Aristotelian basis for authentic is our reasoning. So starting in metaphysics, we can know what a thing is, i.e. we can know its nature. Now obviously nominalism denies that. Nominalism says we just have names of stuff. We don't really know reality. Um, various forms of existentialism, reality is a very fluid thing or whatever. If we're starting from a broadly speaking, Aristotelian basis, we can know reality, reality is real, the nature of things is real, we can know what a thing is, we can know the isness, the whatness of a thing. Teleology. All things act for a purpose, for an end. I knowing a thing's nature involves knowing its end. You can't know a flower you can't know a daffodil without knowing a flowered daffodil. You have to know the end, the, the talos, the, where it's heading and its movement. Teleology. Ethics evaluates action in terms of the achievement of the end talos. The ethics is concerned with things flourishing. And things flourish when they achieve their end. And humans ought to act so as to achieve their end well. So two examples, a chef ought to act so as to cook and to cook well. A good baseball hit hits the ball out of the field. Thus ought follows from the is of a thing, the is of an activity. You know what it is? You know its end, therefore you know whether it's achieving the end. You call it good in as much as it achieves its end, its function, its talos. So say there, a good act is evaluated as such by being in accord with function talos. 
Another example, a bad act of speaking, for example, lies to the listener, betraying the purpose of speech. So you look at the action, speaking to somebody, what is its purpose, what is its telos, what is its end, lying thwarts that, therefore it's a bad act of speaking. Say, to know a thing's function and ergon, you need to know what it is, i.e. its nature. Thus, ought follows from is. Okay, spelling that out a bit more in a longer example. Eating. An example showing is or reasoning. To eat morally, you need to know what a man is. And to know what eating is is a sub-function of man. I to know the purpose end of eating. So what is the nature of eating? See, the end is sustenance. The pleasure attaches, but pleasure isn't the end. Sustenance must thus be the measure of proper eating, but can also refer to secondary ends, human social interaction. So let's pause there a moment, just what's being said, claimed there. This particular human activity, eating, we can see a number of things that attach, relate to it, pleasure. So we looked earlier in this course at a long thing looking at pleasure. If we're not Jansenists, if we're not Puritans, pleasure is not a problem. Uh, St. Thomas says, pleasure attaches to the conclusion of every completed act. Different pleasures for different acts. That's part of what's going on in the activity of eating. There are also secondary things. So in all of different human societies in history, we see that eating together is a big deal, that there is a social function in eating, that it somehow binds people, that we'd be neglecting to, we wouldn't see what eating really is as a human activity if we didn't see that was a significant part of it. But the primary end, what is eating about, is pretty obviously nourishment. So that is the primary measure by which we're going to say is an act of eating in keeping with its end or violating its end. Yeah? Do, do the secondary ends ever affect the morality of an action? Because um, if eating is primarily about sustenance, but if you do it not in a social setting, or you like an unsocial way, or you eat lousy food, it doesn't taste good. Like it doesn't seem, I don't know, so like the primary end seems like it's all of that, is it right? Or? So I guess you could satisfy the primary end, but on some occasions the secondary end being thwarted might be so significant. Um, I'm not sure if on a one-off case, so, to, so sometimes you do eat alone, yeah? And now we wouldn't say that was thwarting the nature of the act. We do say a seminarian who always wants to eat alone, human formation issue, uh, a human issue, um, 
So it's a secondary end, but actually if you're never in your eating somehow acknowledging that, that would in somehow a broader circumstantial context be wrong. But the measure of eating we would put in terms of its primary end. But this structure doesn't depend on saying there is only one end in every activity. That's one of the key points I want you to take away from what I'm trying to say here. Which is going to relate to the question of contraception because procreation is only one of the ends of the marital act. Okay, the examples I put at the bottom of that page then. I say, dieting is moral because a rational man regulates his food. Gluttony is immoral because it is irrational. A rational man eats according to his needs, that there's an end purpose in eating. And excessive dieting is immoral because it's excessive by, by definition. So that all is fairly obvious, logical, as a structure of an argument. And is something that is rooted biologically, bodily, but also very personally. These things have a significance for the body, but we're caring about the body because we care about the person. And you can't care for the person without caring the body. Okay, over the page. Now, these next pages, I'm trying to unpack Janet Smith in much greater detail because she does focus very specifically on bodily organs. So, top of the page, I title this little section, Physicalism and Why the body's processes are relevant to morality. As noted previously, progressives complained of a physicalist focus on the body and its finality. So why are these relevant to morality? Well, I start by saying the human body has a moral law written into it by its creator. Footnoting Romans, the law written on their hearts. So this is a common observation in natural law. St. Thomas says, what is law? He says, law is a kind of rule and measure. And he says it can be in a thing in two ways. As in that which measures or rules, for example, in a yardstick for measuring, as reason measures or rules. But it can also be in that which is measured or ruled. For example, in a thing measured to size as the law is in those things that are inclined to something by reason of some law. I then give an example from uh, Russell Hittinger, one of the more famous natural law um, ethicists of the last last, second half of the last century. Law-abiding traffic, he asked the question, what is the law in? So properly speaking, he says the law is in the mind of the legislator. The legislator in Congress or wherever says, 
traffic's going to move like this. Traffic's going to go on the right-hand side of the road. It's going to stop at a red light. It's going to go 70 on the freeway, but 30 when in town. The law is in the mind of the legislator. Derivatively, the mind is in the mind of the motorist who has heard all that from the legislator in his mind and acts accordingly. Very extendedly though, the law is in things, like the physical flow of the traffic. So thinking of the traffic example, staying with that a second, if you are an alien from another planet, you could look down at the traffic even in Columbus, which won an award last year for having the worst driving in the nation, even here, you could look at the traffic and you could figure out what the laws are that were in the mind of the legislator. What side of the road to drive on, what to do at a traffic light. You can look at the physical stuff and discern what the law is. But the law is in those physical things in a derivative sense, not a primary sense. And basically what Janet Smith is saying is you can look at the body and the law is written into the body in a similar extended fashion. So you can figure out how to behave by looking at the body because the law in the mind of the eternal legislator, he didn't make these bodies randomly. He made them with a purpose. He made them to be used in certain ways, to flourish in certain ways. The law is in the body. Then quote from St. Paul, there is another law in my members. Anyone remember the context there? So this line, the, a law in my members, you'll see lots of natural law discussions quote this. Um, this is one of those cases where as theologians we pluck a bit out of the Bible that gives me the words I want, um, even though it has nothing to do with the original context. Because um, there he's talking about the law of sin in my members. Um, but it is still the notion that there's something in my body, in my members. So knowing the natural law, say if the law is written in the body, then it can be known by looking at the body. So if you're going to highlight one line on that page, I think that would be the line. If the law is written in the body, then it can be known by looking at the body. So the physical, biological processes of the body, what do they reveal? Well, not only the working of the body, but the nature of the human person. Thus there's a need for reverence, and here I'm quoting Humana Vitae, reverence due to the whole human organism and its natural functions. So if we apply that then, applying this reasoning to sex. Say sexual intercourse, to engage in sex morally, you need to know what a man is and what sexual intercourse is as a sub-function of man, right? to know that purpose end of sex. So if we looked at earlier in this course, the nature of sex, 
Its end is procreation and union inseparably. These are two ends, but inseparable. So this is a dual significance indicated by examining the biological processes of the human body, the personal processes of, the hum of human interaction, with pleasure attaching but pleasure not being the end. So even if we look at humans at a merely biological level, something about what's happening in sexual intercourse indicates that there is a union, a proximity, a connection involved there that is biological and for a rational being, meaning that these biological things happening have some personal significance. So to know the personal significance of the act, we can look at what's going on biologically. So we'll notice later in the course when we look at some more stuff on chastity training, um, in the act of sexual intercourse, uh, we now know various hormones are released that bond the couple together. That we can look at the biology and it indicates to us something of the nature of the act and with that therefore the law written into the body by the mind of the rational being, the, the eternal legislator. So the eternal law in God's mind we participate in that as rational beings in what we call the natural law and we can know that by looking at the nature of our body and its biological processes. Then give some examples there at the bottom of the page. So actions that violate the unitive dimension, so promiscuity, rape, um, actions that violate the procreative dimension, anal sex, oral sex, contraceptive sex. So if we look at the nature of the act, in different ways, those different actions are contrary to the nature of what that act looks like when it's flourishing, what that act looks like when it's achieving its end. Okay, Smith then goes even more biological in her analysis, as I then summarize on the next page. Before we get, so the next page she's getting even more physical in her structure. Can you see broadly speaking the trajectory of what this approach would look like in a natural law argument thus far already? And there's lots here that indicates um, that contraception is kind of generally wrong, that contraception is generally thwarting the person. To kind of step from that to say, well, therefore it always involves that, that's kind of the detail of the argument that really pulls everything together. Okay, page five. What are we doing time-wise? Okay. So this page
page I've titled Respecting the Purposes Built into Our Nature and into Our Organs. And the organs here is a very, an argument very particular to Janet Smith. So she's going to look at you as a body and the different organs your body has and say, well, let's look at those organs and figure out with each of those bits what action is put, um, characteristic of that organ and therefore what, morally speaking, must be the purpose, the moral use of an act that relates to that organ. With the presumption being that there would be acts that would violate certain organs and violate therefore the person. And as we'll note, some acts are more inherently significant to humans than others, or other, some bodily organs, um, that they affect me personally more than others. Um, okay, and I start at the top of the page, quoting again from Humana Vitae this phrase, there's a need for reverence due to the whole human organism and its natural functions. So Smith argues, got five steps to her argument there. First step, an organ has a function it's naturally ordered towards. And this function can be discerned by observing, quoting her, the purpose in fact it accomplishes when healthy and functioning properly. So the eye sees, the ear hears, the tongue has a dual function, it speaks and it eats. The genital organ likewise has a dual function, it procreates and it unites a couple. I say in a total mutual self-gift, there's no greater physical union. So the fact that there isn't even biologically, an action that can unite a man and woman more closely together, even at the level of the organs, indicates to us that there is something about union there that is of significance beyond all the other organs of the body. So pleasure, as noted in other lectures, pleasure as with all human actions, Distinct pleasures accompany the healthy, proper use of the organs. And none, but nonetheless, pleasure is not the purpose per se, rather it accompanies and completes the activity. So that's our first point. The body organs, you can look at them and you can see a whole lot of them, functions that are proper to the different organs. Second step of her argument, evolution. This, I think, is, as a former scientist, I find a very interesting uh, part of her analysis. She say, says, evolution supports the notion that bodily parts each have a teleology, a function, because natural selection adapts each specific organ in order to be useful in a particular environment. So rabbit ears are big, to let them hear predators. Leopard legs are long to run faster after prey. In contrast, the human appendix is small 
because it is redundant, that a large appendix would waste energy and put the human at an evolutionary disadvantage. Which means, from an evolutionary perspective, the procreative and unitive purposes of the human genitals somehow serve the broader human fulfillment. And if you study evolution at college level, the broad notion of natural selection in this sort of context. So if the, if the, if the little rabbit had ears that were too big to be useful to it, it would use up its bodily energy in heating those ears and so forth. And it would be at an evolutionary disadvantage in comparison to rabbits who had an ear that was a useful, not too small, not too big size to, to serve it in its environment. That the different organs in different species always serve um, the species in that context, the context of its particular environment. The evolution means that our body parts aren't redundant. They have a function, a purpose, a teleology that serves um, the particular species. So if that's true, the animal kingdom, in some sense, is therefore reasonable to look at ourselves and say, well, there must likewise be a teleology of function that is serving my broader human fulfillment in my human organs. And so these semi-redundant organs, like the appendix, are kind of an example of that in reverse. Okay, more detailed step in the argument. Point three. She says there's no moral shame in having an organ that fails to function. So, for example, I need feel no guilt about having poor eyesight. So my eye has the function of seeing, but my eye isn't a very good eye. I, I, need, I need glasses. Um, I can't see properly without my glasses. I don't need to feel shame about that fact. If I lived in a country where it wasn't possible to have glasses, that would be a great disadvantage to me, but I wouldn't need to feel moral shame about only being able to partially see you. Step four in her argument, there's nothing wrong in using an organ that is not achieving its function or full function. For example, there's nothing sinful in, a, in seeing partially with a poor eye, and there's nothing sinful in using my tongue to eat, even if it cannot function to speak. So if you've got um, a malformed tongue and you can't speak properly, well, that doesn't mean there's something morally wrong with you using your tongue to eat properly. So just because one of those functions isn't working doesn't mean there's something wrong in using the other function. Step five, though, she says there is something wrong in deliberately thwarting the natural ordination of an act. And why? She says, because we must respect the purposes 
built into our nature. That to damage my tongue so I cannot speak is to violate not merely my tongue, but the human and personal significance that speech involves. So that final step is a very significant part of her moral structuring. So there are purposes in the organs, there are acts that relate to those purposes, an act that deliberately thwarts the meaning of those acts is violating not just the organ, not just the act somehow abstracted, but violating me as a person doing that act. So the body, the organ, the purposes, the actions, there's a connection in all of these. You violate the action proper to the organ, you violate the person who has that organ because of the connection between person, nature, body, organs, meaning. I'm not just a random bit of DNA thrown together. I exist with a purpose and my parts have purposes and I respect the whole by respecting the parts. Comments thus far. Page six. So we'll get through some of this before the bell. Page six. So at the top there, I've said the perverted faculty argument, and I then footnote a not very well-known scholar, uh, Dylan James, but an article I wrote, you can find online, uh, that is all basically summarizing this. Um, I say Smith's approach can be seen as a highly developed and improved version of the traditional perverted faculty argument. The physiological argument, per se, is biologically structured, whereas Smith's analysis is much broader, i.e. not just physical. So I say a classical preconciliar statement of the perverted faculty analysis, I then summarize there, the end of the sexual faculty can be deduced from, then I quote a scholar that Smith herself quotes, the activity of coitus of sexual intercourse terminates once the sperm is deposited. So sexual intercourse ends when ejaculation happens. That can be physically, physiologically just stated. It's concluded that devices or chemicals to prevent the achievement of this end state, i.e. contraceptives, are wrong because of this prevention of the end state. So that is a physiological structuring of the whole argument. But my point is that that isn't Smith's argument. She's moving deeper than that to where these things relate at a personal human level 
not just at a biological level. Okay, then I'm trying to articulate here. I say the argument is structured, the argument being in this context of this page, the perverted faculty argument. The sexual faculty has a purpose, namely procreation. Any action that violates this purpose is sinful. And I say this type of analysis is used by the Catechism in its analysis of the sin of masturbation. Uh, Tyler, could you read this quote to us? Okay, so I know I've added the bold and the italics in um, my printing of the quote from the Catechism, but I'm trying to highlight what is the structure of the argument used by the Catechism there. The sexual faculty has a purpose. Masturbation is wrong because it violates the purpose of that faculty. That therefore is a perverted faculty argument. So the human has many faculties. If you violate the purpose of those faculties, you sin. You acknowledge the creator by acknowledging the purpose he's built into your faculties. You acknowledge yourself at a natural flourishing level by respecting the purposes built into your faculties. What does Smith say herself about the physiological argument? Um, Christopher, could you read that quote for us? The physiological argument, <coughs> perverted faculty argument, is not sufficient in itself to warrant an absolute condemnation of contraception. The physiological argument is, nonetheless, a part of any argument that contraception, that contraceptive, contraception is intrinsically wrong. Do you see the distinction she's trying to make here? She's saying this is part of her argument, but it isn't her whole argument. It's an essential foundation within her argument, but it's not the whole argument. Okay, let's call it a day there. So what have we looked at today? We've been Part one of two, trying to summarize Janet Smith's approach, her argument as a particular example of what I was saying fits into this context of is-ought arguments, that we can deduce the ought, the moral law, by looking at what things are, there is. That there is, broadly speaking, an Aristotelian metaphysics going on here, where we look at the nature of a thing, we know its nature when we know its end, when we know it, what it looks like flourishing. If you violate that nature by violating the end, you're stopping the flourishing. Um, you're therefore acting against what God, what nature has built into you as a human person.
to my mind, why this presents a vision of the moral law that is so attractive is because it is very obviously about human flourishing. I'm able to say it's wrong because it's stopping me flourishing. And it matters to you to do the moral thing because you also want to flourish. And so for us to articulate on all kinds of levels the different parts of the moral law, the different parts of the sexual life that matter, our argument is all about seeing where human flourishing is either impacted or caused. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.